I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. This morning, we began looking at this text, this passage, and we looked at verses 25 to 27. And I want to finish what we began. I want us to look tonight at verses 28 through the end of the chapter. But I want to begin by reading the passage one more time and setting it before you. And as I read the text, one reason I do so, Paul told Timothy, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. When you begin by reading the Scripture, you're making a statement that everything that I have to say to you tonight is originating in this text, is coming out of this text. And so the real preacher is not me. The real preacher is God through this text. So I trust that the Lord will give us all ears to hear what God says in His Word and that we can apply it to our own lives and be an incarnation, really, of this passage. Luke chapter 14 I want to begin reading in verse 25, and tonight we'll start our study at verse 28. Now, large crowds were going along with him, and the hymn, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children... And brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you? When he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to build, not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, verse 31, what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, He sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but if even salt has become tasteless with what, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
In a former life, I once played college football for Texas Tech University. After my senior year in high school, I was given a full four-year football scholarship to Texas Tech. Everything for the next four years was paid in full. My tuition was free, every class for four years. My room was free, my board and and meals were free, my laundry was free, my books were free, my travel was free, my tutors were free. For the next four years, my entire college education was free. It did not cost me one thin dime. But then again, it cost me everything. I could barely afford this free education. There were two-day practices in West Texas under that blazing hot sun. You'd stand on one end of the AstroTurf field at the goal line, and you'd look to the other goal post, and you literally could not even see the other goal post for all of the heat that was rising from the AstroTurf field, which was like a hot skillet. There were full contact scrimmages. There were wind sprints, weightlifting, agility drills, running laps, running stadium stairs, tackling drills, blocking drills. There were team meetings, mandatory curfew, team rules, mandatory class attendance, mandatory grades, even mandatory church attendance. For the next four years, that university literally owned me. It cost me everything that I had to give. It even required trips to the hospital with the trainer as I gave blood, sweat, toil, and tears. I recently went to the, a doctor to have him look at my sinuses, and he said, oh, your nose has been broken. I said, no, my nose has never been broken. He says, trust me, your nose has been broken. It cost me everything for this free education. And though it was free, it cost every drop I had to give. In a real way, that is exactly how salvation is if you indeed are saved. Everything is free. Jesus lived a sinless life under the law, obeyed the law on our behalf, and secured for us a perfect righteousness on our behalf. And He went to the cross and was lifted up to die. And there upon the cross, Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid it all, and all to Him I owe. Sin that left a crimson stain. He he washed it white as snow. And it is offered to us as a free prepaid gift. 
There is nothing that we can add to the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But at the same time, true saving faith necessitates that you commit all that you are to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will cost you everything to receive the free gift. It necessitates a life of self-denial, death to self, death to lust. It necessitates sacrifice and submission, and it brings adversity and tribulation and persecution, and for some, even martyrdom. The cost for following Jesus Christ is always a high cost. The cost of following Christ is never marked down, it is never discounted, it is never reduced, it is never on sale. Following Christ is never pursued on easy street. This morning we looked at these first three verses and just to give a brief summary, we noted the crowd in verse 25 that it was a mixed crowd. Large crowds were going along after Jesus. Some of them were committed. Others were just curious. Uh, Some were counterfeit. It was a mixed bag. Some were true believers in Christ, and others were just hanging out with religious people and a part of a religious crowd, but they no more had committed their life to Christ than the devil had. And so in verse 26, we see the call... Jesus, it says at the end of 25, turned and said to them. What a bold preacher Jesus was. He turned and said to them, and in verse 26, the call, if anyone comes to me. He invited the entire crowd to come to him with a step of faith and entrust their soul and entrust their life to the Lord Jesus. But... Third, we noted the condition. And the condition is that you must hate your own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and even your own life, or you cannot, you cannot, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to be an authentic believer, a genuine convert to Christ. So, what does this mean? Well, what Jesus is saying, he's using a figure of speech. And what Jesus is saying, as we noted this morning, that you must love Jesus Christ so much more than anything or anyone in this world that the love that you have for Christ, the affection, the allegiance, and the loyalty that you have for Christ makes any other thing in your life appear to be as hate because you love Christ supremely. And Jesus will never be number two in anyone's life. He is Lord. And that's the condition Jesus is stating. Jesus is saying, I will not follow you. You're going to follow me. Or you cannot be my disciple. The commitment of your life is going to have to be real and genuine 
and deep. Then we noted further in verse 27, the cross. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. A cross, we noted, was an, is an instrument of death. It was the electric chair of the first century. It was the gas chamber of the first century. A cross was what someone was placed upon, nails driven into their hands, and they would be crucified and put to death. And the, ex- and the condemned criminal would carry his cross through the streets to the execution site. And as he carried his cross, he was a dead man walking. He had no more rights to his life And so it is that for those of us who follow Jesus Christ, we are dead to our old way of life. And we are dead to our old pursuits. We are dead to our old passions. And we now carry the cross. Not the cross of Christ. He hasn't been put on the cross yet. We all have our own cross. And it symbolizes death to self and the burial of the old life, that there would be a resurrection of a new life in Christ. And so Jesus is intentionally sifting through the crowd. He's not making it easy to follow Him. He is actually upping the ante. He is actually setting the bar at a very high place that to be one of His followers, we must be sold out to Him. None of his followers can straddle the fence. They can't play all ends into the middle. They can't be someone on Sunday and someone else on Monday. He is requiring all-out commitment to him. Now, we come to verse 28. And I want you to note the calculation. Because Jesus, as it were, is putting up his hands and saying to the crowd, do not make a rash decision. Do not allow your emotions to just sweep you into a decision that would be a shallow, superficial decision. No, you must count the cost before you commit to me. Because though salvation is free, discipleship will cost you every step of the way. And so beginning in verse 28 and extending down to verse 32, Jesus gives two parables. Jesus is the master teacher. And Jesus now gives two parables. You know what a parable is? A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly... Or a heaven, yeah, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. He doesn't just tell them what this commitment looks like, he shows them what this commitment looks like. And what is interesting in these two parables, they both say essentially the same thing that it will cost you everything to follow him. In the first parable, in verses 28 and 29 and 30, he says, if you follow me, it will cost you everything. 
in the second parable, he says in verse, verse 31 and 32, if you do not follow me, it will cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything whether you follow him or whether you don't follow him. What stunning, profound brilliance is on display in these verses as like a vice grip being tightened upon the conscience of these listeners, Jesus is saying, it's going to cost you either way, whether you follow me, whether you don't follow me, so you might as well follow me. So let's look at the first parable here in verse 28. And as we look at this parable, I want you to give thought to your life. I want you to give thought to your soul. Have you truly counted the cost to follow Christ? So in verse 20, 28, he begins by saying, for which one of you? And as he says that, he's looking straight into the eyes of these who are following him, hundreds if not thousands of people pouring out of towns and cities and and, and little villages, as the, it's a groundswell of people that are following after him. They have never heard anyone preach like him. They have never seen miracles like he is performing. And so Jesus looks them square in the eye and says, which one of you? And he now begins to give this parable when he wants to build a tower. In, in this parable, this man is a, he's a builder, not of a small building, but of a tower uh, requiring a, a sizable investment of resources to undertake this project. Uh, the word for tower in verse 28 that you see in your Bible is, is a Greek word that can mean a castle, uh, a, a fortified structure rising to a considerable height that would require watchmen in the towers or on the wall. So, which one of you, when he wants to build this extraordinary edifice, does not first sit down? In other words, on the front end, before you make this decision, to begin to build this tower, you need to sit down at the table and do the math. You need to add up what this is going to require, not just to start the project, but to complete the project, because it's going to require an enormous commitment on your part to carry it out. So you need to do the math on this. You, you need to see what you have and what it requires. So he says, does, who does not first sit down and calculate the cost. In other words, you need to add it up and come up with a grand total and see if you're ready to make this commitment. Because you're just going to be throwing your money away. If you start this project and then come to the realization, you know what? I don't have what it takes. 
So I just blew all that money. I just threw it down the drain. It was, a, it was just a total waste of time and resources. So he says, this, this man who begin, is ready to begin to build, he must sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it, if he has enough resources, if he has enough materials, if he has the ability to hire enough workers, if he has enough money to meet payroll. Does he have enough to complete it, to finish the task? And that question anticipates a negative answer. Oh, he wants to build this tower, but he doesn't have what it takes. So, note the carelessness in verse 29. The carelessness. Jesus now tells of this foolish builder who just rushed into the project without counting the cost. So, in verse 29, he says, otherwise, meaning on the other hand, however, by total contrast to the wise builder who counts the cost before he builds, here is the scenario and the story of the man who did not count the cost. He is a foolish builder. He is a careless builder. He is a reckless builder. He is not a shrewd manager of what he has. So, verse 29, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, oh, it looks so good at the beginning. He, he made this initial decision. He, he cleared the land, he bought the materials, he began the project, and it started so well, and it looked so good, and everyone, when they walked by, they, they saw the beginning of, of this tower going up the foundation, but then we read at the end of verse 29, in the middle of verse 29, it says, and is not able to finish. He didn't have what it takes to complete the project. He ran out of money. He ran out of materials. He ran out of willpower. Oh, he had good intentions. He, he meant well, uh, he started well, he just could not finish. Why? Because he never counted the cost on the front end. He made this rash decision that was a superficial decision, it was a shallow decision that lacked the true commitment to carry it through. This builder pictures the false convert. It pictures those in the crowd there that day who were just swept up in the emotion of the moment. It was so easy just to, to slide in with the crowd. It was just so easy to go with the flow. It was just so easy to learn the vocabulary. It was so easy to blend in with everyone else, but down in the heart, there was never a genuine decision 
to love Christ more than this world, than loved ones. There was no cross-bearing. There was no death to self. They were religious but lost. They were Judas disciples who had never come to the place of counting the cost of what this would require for me to follow Jesus Christ. It was just all good times. It was kind of a health, wealth, prosperity gospel. What's in it for me? What what good times will come to me? But I won't ever have to sacrifice, deny myself, and take up a cross and follow after Christ. So Jesus is blowing the lid off of their self-deception about where they really are with Him. So he says in verse 29, the condemnation, all who observe it, that all refers to the whole town. Everybody who knows this builder and everybody who sees this project starting, the town people, the neighbors, the business partners, the bankers, the the competitors, all who observe it. Now, this unfinished tower with just a bare foundation and maybe some scaffolding and just some studs, but the empty shell of an abandoned tower... Everybody sees this, and they begin to laugh. What fool would have begun a project like this without ever coming to the point of counting the cost? You didn't know what it would cost you. So you just entered in so easy, but it wasn't a genuine commitment. And you just so easy fell away. It's like the soil, the seed that fell on the soil in Matthew 13, on the shallow soil. And it at first began to to grow, but there was a, a rock ledge underneath the very thin soil. And when those roots went down and hit the rock ledge, they reversed their direction and then went up and were exposed to the air above the surface and they just died. And it pictures someone who is self-deceived about being a follower of Christ, you're just on easy street. You've never really become a disciple of Christ. And so at the end of verse 30, at the end of verse 29, it says, they began to ridicule him. That means they began to mock him and jeer him, and scorn him, and scoff at him, and laugh at him, verse 30, saying, this man, and there's a note of disdain, looking down at this man, began to build, and was not able to finish. Why? Why? he just entered it in such a blasé fair, superficial way, he never counted the cost. And the point of the parable is those in the crowd there that day 
had never counted the cost of being what we would say today of being a real Christian. So what was the cost? The cost is everything. Everything that you are and everything that you have all signed over to the Lord Jesus Christ and your life is no longer your life. Your life now belongs to the one whom you are following, Jesus Christ. And the cost Jesus laid out in verse 26, this is the cost. You must hate your father and mother and brother and sister, yes, even your own life which literally means you just must love me more than those whom you love the most. And you must love me more than you love your old sinful stinking life. And the cost is you must take up your cross and die to self and to a life pursuit of sin and head in a totally new direction. You must count the cost, or you will be like this foolish builder who just prays a prayer, raises a hand, signs a card, joins a group, but you've never done business with Jesus. So that's the first parable. It's a powerful story, is it not? And it is a story that is directed to each and every one of us here tonight. And the cost of following Christ has never been discounted and it has never been marked down. It is the same in every generation on every continent. It will cost you self-righteousness to no longer trust in yourself and trust in your own good works and trust in your own morality to commend you to God. It will trust you your self-control, that you're no longer in control of your life. You're no longer in charge, but you're under new management now. You are under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You're no longer doing your own thing and going your own way and doing what you want, when you want, how you want, but now you commit to do what Christ wants and when Christ wants it and how Christ wants it. And you're, 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 you're dead to your self-ease. You're no longer just letting your own lusts just take you away with the flow of this world. You, you now have reversed your course and you now are swimming upstream against the course of this world. And you've died to self-pride. Come to the end of yourself. That's when Christ begins. These are strong words from the Savior. There's a second parable. So, if you say yes, I'm going to follow Christ, then you're going to have to count the cost, and the cost is it's going to cost you everything. Which means... 
Not that you work for your salvation, it just means that you make a total commitment and surrender of your life to Jesus. You cross the line. You've burned your bridges behind you. There's no going back. Now, the second parable starts in verse 31, and this is the next heading. It's the conflict. Jesus is out ahead of the crowd in what they're thinking, and He knows what some of them are thinking, and some of them are ready to say, are saying to themselves internally, well, I'm not ready to make that commitment. I'm not ready to be sold out to Jesus Christ. I want to hang on to my own life. I want to call my own shots. I want to make my own choices. I want to go my own way. So Jesus now gives this second parable to show them that if you don't give your life to Christ, it's also going to cost you everything, but in a different way. It will cost the damnation of your soul in hell forever. So notice verse 31. This parable is all about two kings with two armies who are headed to an unavoidable confrontation and conflict. Let me say that again. There's two kings. Both kings have armies at their disposal, and they are marching against one another, and it is an unavoidable conflict. That is the parable. So in verse 31, Jesus said, or what king? Let's just stop right there. This first king in this parable is everyone in the crowd that day who had not committed their life to Christ. It was everyone in the crowd that day who was just being swept up in the emotion of the moment and had an easy road in front of them. And they're pictured as a king because a king rules over a domain. And everyone in the crowd that day who had not taken up their cross to follow him, who had not made him the supreme loyalty and allegiance of their life, They're like this king who is just reigning over their own life, calling their own shots, doing their own thing, going their own way. They just mean the king over their own life. They've been running their own life. So in verse 31, or what king? Now follow what Jesus is saying in verse 31. For what king, when he, referring to the first king, sets out to meet another king, the second king, is the one who is telling the parable. The second king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, none other than Jesus Christ himself. And he sets out to meet another king. Please note this, in battle. Do you see that in your Bible, in battle? This first king is heading into battle with this first king. This first king, because he has not yet committed his life to Christ, has declared himself to be the avowed enemy of the second king. This first king is at war 
with the second king. He is at enmity with the second king. He is hostile to the second king. Just like Colossians 1.23 says in Romans chapter 5, that every unbeliever is an enemy of God, whether by active rebellion or passive indifference. They are at war. Every unbeliever is at war with Almighty God and with Christ. In fact, bitter opposition and stiff strife. And if you're here tonight and you're without Christ and you have not yet taken up your cross and and you love yourself more than you love Christ, if you love others more than you love Christ, I, I am here to tell you the truth about the state of your soul that you are and an enemy of Christ. You're not in neutral zone. You're not in no man's land. You have declared your opposition against Christ. You will not take His yoke upon you. But what is worse, far worse, is not only is this first king at war with the second king, but the second king is at war with the first king that Jesus is at war with rebels who oppose His kingdom, who have committed cosmic treason against Him. And this very moment, they are under the wrath of God. There's more to the story than smile, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God is angry with the wicked every day. In John 3, verse 36, the text reads, He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's a present tense verb, meaning not one day, On the final day, will the wrath of God be revealed? No, right now, today, this very moment, if you do not obey the Lord Jesus Christ in saving faith, you are presently under the wrath of God. I want you to take your Bible and turn back to the book of Psalms. It'll be easy to find. And I want you to turn to Psalm 2. And I want us to look at five psalms very quickly. Psalm 2, Psalm 5, Psalm 7, Psalm 9, and Psalm 11. And the reason I lay that out before you is I want to impress upon you how these psalms are front-loaded at the beginning of the book of Psalms. These are not hidden at the back of the book of Psalms that might not ever be read by most people. These are intentionally collated and placed at the very beginning of the book of Psalms in order to capture the attention of everyone who enters into this book. And in Psalm 1, Jesus, or the psalmist says there are only two roads in life. Uh, there is the way of the righteous and there is the way of the wicked. And in Psalm 2, he talks about those who are on the way of the wicked which is every unbeliever, 
every unsaved church member, every person who names the name of Christ but has never come to the point of submission and surrender and cross-bearing. So beginning in verse 1 of Psalm 2, why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? And it pictures a worldwide conspiracy against God. It pictures the entire human race in every generation of history rising up in their conspiracy against God. Verse 2, the kings of the earth take their stand. These kings rule over the nations, and the rulers take counsel together. They they rule over the peoples in in verse 1. Please note the end of verse 2, against the Lord and against His anointed, and that ultimately refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the word Christ means, the anointed one. And so the entire world, they can't come together. They can't agree on politics. They can't agree on finances. They cannot agree on social issues. But the one point of agreement that they have around the globe in the kingdom of darkness is their conspiracy to rise up against God. So this is what they say in verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart. In other words, we don't want to be tied down by God. We don't want to be tied down by the moral law of God. We don't want God's definition of the family. We don't want God's definition of morality and purity. We want to throw off those fetters, which are like ropes that would, and cords that would tie us down at the end of verse 3, and cast their cords from us. We want to be free. We want our own sexual orientation. We want to define the family the way we want to do it. This is a picture of the world in which you and I live right now, my friend. And so in verse 4, he, referring to God, who sits in the heavens, laughs. It's not the laughter of hilarity. It is the laughter of scorn. That you little puny man would think that you could rise up against me and throw off my cords and my fetters, the entire world rising up against me. God, but blows and they go to every direction. The end of verse 4 the Lord scoffs at them. There's more to the story than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Verse 5, then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the king that is mentioned in Luke 14, the second king with 20,000 soldiers. I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. In other words, I have enthroned my son at my right hand, the heights of the heavenly Zion. I will surely tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, the father said to the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Note verse 8. Ask of me. Ask of me, the father says to the son. 
and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your position, possession. Now, please note what the Father commands the Son to do with the nations that are in rebellion against God. Verse 9, you, the Father speaking to the Son, shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This is the command of the Father, crush them into hell. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. God is angry with the wicked today. Verse 10. This, this, verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. In other words, wake up before it's too late. Take warning, O judges of the earth. You judges are about to be judged by the judge, the supreme court judge of heaven and earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. Rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. I love the old King James. Kiss the Son. And you know what the picture is? Every defeated king would be brought before the victorious king in his palace, in chains. And the victorious king would be upon his throne, a throne that would be raised up. And the defeated king would be brought before the victorious king. And he was to get on his hands and knees and kiss the feet of the victorious king. And it was a sign of submission under the reigning victorious king. That's what verse 12 is saying. You need to come and bow down before the king of kings and kiss his feet and yield your life completely to him. Look at the middle of verse 12. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry, and you perish in the way, for His wrath may soon be kindled. Yeah, I understand the parable in Luke 14 a whole lot better now. Yeah, these two kings are at war. And in Psalm 2, the, the, the kingdoms of this world and the kings of this world have declared war against the God of heaven, and the God of heaven laughs and mocks and commands the Son to crush the nations with a rod of iron. The holiness of God demands it. You may say, what about the love of God? Well, God has demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what makes the love of God so amazing is that He sends His Son to die for those who have provoked His anger. Look at Psalm 5. Turn the page to Psalm 5. In Psalm 5, beginning in verse 4, and again, to remind you, these are placed at the very entrance into the Psalter. Psalm 5, verse 4, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. 
Please note the next line. You hate all who do iniquity. Please note, he doesn't just hate the iniquity. He hates the sinner man who commits the iniquity. God is holy. He cannot be indifferent towards sin or sinners. Verse 6, you destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. There's more to the story than smile. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Turn to Psalm 7. Psalm 7 and verse 6. The psalmist pours out his soul. David, a man after God's own heart, pours out his soul to God in prayer and says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my enemies and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Now look at verse 11. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Not on the last day, not in eternity. Yes, he will have anger on the last day in eternity. But this text says every day, every Monday, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, every Thursday, God has indignation against everyone who is refusing his right to rule over their lives. Now, note verse 12 and 13. If a man does not repent, he, God, will sharpen his sword. He is pictured here as the divine warrior who has gathered his his instruments of war and is sharpening his sword so that it will pierce the soul. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bit his bow and made himself ready. He's already pulled back the bow. He's put the arrows of his vengeance and his fury into this bow, and it is aimed right at the center man this very moment. Verse 13, he has also prepared for himself deadly weapons, not Q-tips, deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. He doesn't just fire the arrow. He torches the arrow, and then lights it up on fire, and then sends it. And what is the target? The target is every unbeliever who refuses to follow Christ on his terms. Charles Haddon Spurgeon in Treasury of David at this point says, when God bends the bow and sharpens his sword, God never misses the target. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Look at Psalm 9. Psalm 9, verse 7 and 8. The Lord abides forever. He has established His throne for judgment. And He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. No mercy, no grace, pure, unvarnished, unadulterated, equity, and justice. So much sin, so much wrath, so much judgment. Look at Psalm 11, beginning in verse 4. 
I say it again, these are all front-loaded at the beginning of the book of Psalms so that everyone who comes into the, the book of Psalms as if entering into the temple will be sobered concerning who it is that they are worshiping. In Psalm 11, and verse, beginning in verse 4, the Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold His eyelids test the sons of men, meaning no person escapes his penetrating gaze. It is though he is squinting his eyes in order to bring into focus so that he sees into every crevice of every heart and every life. Verse 5, the Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence, his God's soul hates. Just mark that down. You say, oh, that's just Old Testament. Listen, Romans 1 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness of men, present tense verb right now, Hebrews 10 and Hebrews 12, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So look at verse 6, Psalm 11. Upon the wicked, he, God, will rain snares. It'll be thunder and lightning and a downpouring like no one has seen. Fire and brimstone and burning wind. In other words, it's not just fire, but the burning wind fans the flame of the fire and escalates the fire and intensifies the fire of his wrath and his anger, fire and brimstone, and brimstone is just fire falling out of heaven, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. What I want to to underscore for your thinking tonight is, as we look at this parable of these two kings, do not think that sounds foreign to who God is and what Christ demands. So come back to Luke 14. That was a necessary backdrop for Luke 14 as we consider this second parable. What if we don't commit our life to Christ? What if we don't take up our cross? What if we just love ourselves more than Christ? So verse 31, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, ah, will first sit down and consider. He's going to count the cost. Just like the first parable, the man never sat down to count the cost. In this second parable, this king with only 10,000 troops, he sits down. And he considers, considers whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 men. You do the math. Only a fool would go into battle against the superior greater king who is armed to the teeth, who is marching already against you to destroy you. You'll note at the end of verse 31, the one coming, that's the second king, against you. He, he's not neutral. 
He has declared war. So verse 32, or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation. It's like a little emissary. Sends out some men on horses to approach this advancing king, waving a white flag for us to discuss and ask for terms of peace. What are the terms of peace? The only terms of peace by which the second king will call off the conflict, will call off the war. The terms are the same. It calls for the unconditional surrender of your life. The terms of peace are you must hate your father and mother and brother and sister, yes, even your own life. And the terms of peace are you must take up a cross, die to self, be a dead man walking, and come follow me. That's the only way for you to escape the damnation of your soul. Because everyone who has not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ will be crushed eternally by the second king. Read the book of Revelation. And by the way, just to remind you, that's still in the New Testament of how this is all going to end. Have you accepted his terms of peace? The lesser king does not set the terms. He has no bargaining power. It is the greater king that sets the terms of peace. There is no negotiation. And the greater king, Jesus Christ, has said to the lesser kings, you and me, the only terms of peace are the unconditional surrender of your life to me. Have you surrendered your life to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords? And I want you to know He is coming. And He is coming in vengeance. You need to settle this tonight. You need to settle this this very moment. Because at any moment, we could well experience the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the trumpet of God, and the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You need to be right with this King tonight. So notice, if you would please... The next verse, verse 33, so then, has a summation feel, bringing it down to kind of a bottom line, so then, verse 33, 
None of you can be my disciple. I'm just still so amazed at how Jesus is not making it easy to follow him. So then none of you can be my disciple. Who does not give up all his own possessions? What on earth does this mean? These are shocking words. These are hard-hitting words. Well, number one, let me tell you what it's not saying. This is not saying that you have to purchase your salvation. Because no amount of material assets liquidated in your, from your hand can purchase and secure a right standing before God. No amount of gold and silver can take away your sin. Further, this is not saying that you have to take a, a vow of poverty and that you have to just go have a yard sale and sell everything you have and come back to church in order to be a disciple of Christ. Now, if you do that, now we're going to have to take care of you. Don't do that. The Bible assigns the right of private ownership of property. So what does this mean? I mean, Abraham was rich. Job was rich. Solomon was rich. Joseph of Arimathea was rich. So what does this mean? None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Let me tell you what it means. You must give up the control of all your possessions and everything that you own must now be transferred to the Lord Jesus Christ and your apartment is now His apartment. Your bank account is now His bank account. Your car is now His car and you simply are a steward of the Lord's possessions that have been entrusted to you, and you are to use what has been placed into your hands to further His kingdom and to bring glory to God. Everything that you own is under new management. Have you transferred everything that you own and possess into the hands of the King of kings and the Lord of lords and declared it to be His possession. That is what is necessary, Jesus said, to be a disciple of Christ. But the possessions are nothing to assign over to the Lord. It's your life. It's your soul that must be transferred over to the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, your little possessions are nothing. Your eternal soul is everything. So finally, the caution, and then we're finished. The caution. Those in the crowd following Jesus must have been wondering when He would ease up this hard-hitting address, address. They must have expected Jesus would, would balance his message by softening it here, 
But rather than letting up on the demands, Jesus pushes down on the gas pedal and cinches the knot even tighter in what he is requiring to be an authentic disciple. And so he says in verse 34, therefore, which is another word of summation, salt is good. Of course salt is good. It's good for seasoning. It's good for preserving. It's good for cleansing. And we're to be the salt of the earth, Jesus said, Matthew 5.13. But if, if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? And the answer is nothing within itself. And there was, there in the Middle East, a kind of salty rock, rock-like mineral called gypsum that looked like salt, gave the appearance of being salt, but it wasn't real salt. It was fake salt. And the comparison Jesus is making is just like many in the crowd that day. Just a, a fake follower of Christ, not a real authentic follower of Christ. And so Jesus says in verse 35 of, these, of this fake salt, these fake believers, he says, it is useless, meaning it's of no value whatsoever for the kingdom of God. It has no value for the purposes of God here upon the earth. It is useless. It's not even good for the soil to, to sow it into the, to, the, to the ground as any kind of fertilizer and, it's, and Jesus said, or for the manure pile. I wouldn't say that except this is what Jesus said. And in, the old, and in this day and time, there wasn't indoor plumbing as we know it. And there was just simply earthen vases that would contain human excrement. And they would take those vases and take it outside and just keep piling it on top of what was already there, and the stench would rise into the heavens, and when the wind would blow, it would be almost unbearable, and so you would have to throw into the human dung that which would uh, curb the smell and the stench, and Jesus is saying, this fake salt is useless to even throw on the, on the manure pile because it has no penetrating punch or power to it. And the comparison is obvious, that if you're not sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ, your life is amounting to nothing for the kingdom of God. And it's not even worth throwing on the manure pile. You're just in the way. You're bad advertisement for what God is wanting to do upon the earth. These are strong words. And then Jesus follows it up just to make sure you and I get the point. Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, are you listening to me, Jesus said. Because if you're truly listening, you will respond as you should and die to self and take up your cross and with a surpassing love and affection for Christ, follow Him, having counted the cost of what this will require, no longer me living for me 
but me living for Jesus. When you come to the point like the defeated king and you accept the terms of peace before he slaughters you. And the terms of peace is the total commitment of your life to him. And you and I have no bargaining chips to try to meet him halfway. It's all or nothing. So I want to ask you tonight, are you in? Are you in? Are you all in? Because there's no fence sitters in heaven. It doesn't take much of a man or a woman to be a disciple. It just takes all there is of them. I close with this. Something I came across a few years ago. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I will not look up, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, or popularity. I do not have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven. My road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, backed down, deluded, or delayed. I will not give up, back up, let up, or shut up until I have preached up, prayed up, stored up, and stayed up the cause of Christ. I must go until He returns. I must give until I drop. I must preach until all know. I must work until He comes. And when He comes back to get His own, He will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be nailed to the mast. My colors will be flying and will be clear. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? The answer to that question will determine how it will be for you when the second king returns. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, these verses, these parables are sobering. They call for our self-examination whether we be in the faith. Father, how we praise you that you sent your Son to tell it like it is, to lay it out before us in clear, unmistakable terms, the commitment that he requires for us to follow him. Lord, I pray here tonight for those of us who have committed our lives to Jesus Christ, who have burned our bridges behind us, would you deepen and solidify 
our fundamental commitment to Christ tonight. Even as we hear these words, as we will walk out of this sanctuary here shortly, Lord, may you deepen the well within my own soul. And Father, I do pray for those here tonight without Christ, and there's no way we could get this many people together and for every single one of us to be a follower of Christ. Father, would you single out within the hearts of those who are like those just going along with the crowd, Lord, would you bring conviction to their heart? Would you give them no rest for their soul until they find their rest in the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, God, draw them to yourself. Bring them to be followers of Christ. May you do that tonight in this house of worship. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.